0: Yo, uh, that's what I'm talking about.
1: Who who has a who has like a kind of laid back flow?
0: Snoop, of course. Oh, okay. I mean, he, he like invented the laid back flow.
1: I know, but like he's he's more nasal than you.
0: Oh, then, Yo. then Jamster has Yo. a laid back flow.
1: Okay, there we go. Hype is a strange beast. On the same day that Korn's self-titled debut hit the shelves, a Chicago quartet released its debut single, a slab of power pop so perfect that somehow it made people mad. After years of weirdly specific Spotify recommendations, I find it hard to remember that back in 1994, if I wanted to find out what was new in music, I had three options. One, talk to a cool friend. Two, go to the record store and hit up the listening station. Three, watch MTV. Four, read magazines. This was when I was in college. I spent a bunch of time at the record store, but my cool friends were into stuff like Crass and Camper Van Beethoven, old stuff. And I didn't have a TV while I was in college and therefore no MTV. So I subscribed to Rolling Stone, Spin, and Details and never missed an issue of Mean Street, the free music magazine of Inland LA. Suddenly, all of these magazines were talking about Veruca Salt, but not much of the chatter had to do with their music. They were asking, are these girls grunge-lite posers who are too young and inexperienced to be on a major label? Are they too much like the breeders? Are they authentic? I don't know if the music business is any less sexist today, but the fact that this was so blatant so recently is really bizarre to remember. Melody Maker titled its review of American Thighs Ovarian Sisters. The question hanging over Veruca Salt seemed to be, we already have a few girls with guitars. Should we allow more? Meanwhile, Veruca Salt, the actual band, not the punching bag concept, put out a couple of terrific rock albums and one timeless single. Today on Hidden Jukebox, Veruca Salt's Seether.
0: Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. Ovarian Sisters. Wow. What does
1: that even mean? I'm that, like, I, somebody wrote that and thought it was clever. I,
0: I know that that's really, really terrible writing.
1: Uh, yeah, it was. And like, Just the the extent to which female fronted bands just got shit on by the press over and over in the 90s and like I know this is not just in the 90s but like that's when I was coming of age musically just like and I was I was influenced by that and like you know there were like bands that I didn't think I liked because you know. Someone said that they weren't authentic because there was a woman in the band,
0: which happened a lot to me as well. One of the things that I did researching for this episode is I started thinking about the whole Lilith Fair concept, and it was about uh, giving women a voice, but the grunge and alternative scene had a lot of pretty successful female bands or female-fronted bands. Sure. Just putting together a short list, Hole, L7, Belly, Veruca Salt, Alanis Morissette, Garbage, Liz Fair, Babes in Toyland, PJ Harvey, The Breeders, Juliana Hatfield, and this list, like, keeps going.
1: Yeah, but... Only two of those artists, I would argue, were successful on par with, like, the big dude grunge bands, um, Alanis Morissette and Garbage.
0: Oh, um, you you wouldn't put Hole on that list?
1: I don't think so. Like, I mean, Hole is my favorite band of the 90s, like, no question, but I don't think they ever achieved success to the same extent.
0: Those are big words. Your favorite band of the 90s is Hole. Oh, for sure. I know that prior to me starting to be a host on this show uh you and your previous co-host did a whole album and you definitely gushed over it but what puts that band above others for you
1: oh uh well i guess this just became the whole episode um No, we won't
0: talk about this for the whole episode, just part of it. Oh, God.
1: (laughs) Um, That when I go back and listen to either of Hole's 90s albums, they feel so fresh, so relevant. The hooks are so enormous. Like, it's just, it's like discovering it anew every time. And, like, I just don't get that. Like, you know, there are, obviously there is tons, you know, hundreds of albums from the 90s that I absolutely love and listen to all the time. But Hole is the only one that really like gives me that spark every single time,
0: which is strange, because I think a lot of people would argue that Hole would never have even been discovered or anybody would have cared about them if it weren't for Kurt Cobain and his relationship with Courtney Love.
1: That may or may not be true, but the fact is Hole was a fucking brilliant band.
0: Great. Okay. That's all we'll do on whole this okay. episode. Uh, back to Veruca Salt. This is a really, really well written song. And yes. You can say what you want about the Ovarian sisters, but they were great, great songwriters.
1: And like there is something so straightforward about it. And, you know, I was listening, you know, I, I was trying to think of, like, who who is doing stuff like this now? And, like, I came up with some, you know, obscure indie punk bands that I listened to. But you know what I was listening to today that is that is direct in sort of the same way that Peruca Salt is direct? What's that? <laughs> it's the new Taylor Swift album. I um, haven't
0: listened to it yet. It It's on my list. Um, uh, admittedly, because... If Boniver is involved in something, I will listen to it.
1: Right. It's just, you know, th- there is some studio wizardry going on, but it's really just like very straightforward songwriting. And that's what Farouk Assault does. Yeah,
0: you you put in your notes uh, that it's really really pure in terms of '90s rock production, like Big Muff, which is a type of pedal that does the distortion. No reverb. It's just it's like they just recorded live in the studio with no effects whatsoever.
1: Yeah, and uh, you you almost don't hear that anymore at all, and it's just it's just like a stylistic thing, and like this makes me feel like such an old man because I really like that sound.
0: It's great. <laughs> like, I mean, even in the little time that I've spent in the studio. I would come in and record my parts completely clean with no effects whatsoever, but it didn't mean that my part wouldn't have reverb on it or wouldn't have distortion. We would go into Pro Tools or whatever we would use and add those effects in afterwards.
1: And... I don't know, like, like you know, you and I both use Logic, which uh, is Apple's music production software, and it's very inexpensive, and it comes with all the plugins you could possibly need to make things sound, you know, shimmering and compressed and drenched in reverb and flangey and, like, whatever you want to do, like, auto-tuned. Um, all that stuff is included, so, like, anyone can do that stuff now, and so most people do. I'm, I'm not sure if that's an improvement. No, not necessarily, but... I. It's like,
0: I listen to this song, and it's like you can almost hear them kicking on their pedals and kicking them off, yeah. which has this charmed hit for me, where it's like, we wanted this to be dirty. We wanted this to sound like we were doing it live.
1: You know what other album is like that, that uh, I think really was recorded that way? Do you know the first ever clear album, World of Noise?
0: Oh, my God. So... This is going to be contentious because I think a lot of people only think of Everclear as that band that wrote Santa Monica and uh, Everything's Wonderful, which...
1: I think Santa Monica is a great song. I kind of lost lost track of Everclear after that, but...
0: You know, people think of them as kind of sellout pop stars that were trying to uh, ride the alternative wave, but that first album... World of Noise is so good. And you're absolutely right where it almost sounds like it's recorded live.
1: Yeah, which it may have been. So you go back and listen to American Thighs or the second Veruca Salt album, Eight Arms to Hold You, which is also excellent. And like if you were unaware of like the the manufactured controversy surrounding this album when it came out, you'd just like be like, oh, wow, this is just like like a classic kind of buzzy, loud pop album.
0: It's true. Um, I when researching this again, I went on Spotify and I'm like, so did anybody ever listen to anything else besides Seether? And Seether isn't even uh, their most listened to song on I noticed Spotify. that too.
1: I was surprised.
0: Volcano Girls, which I had forgot about and is a great song from their second album, is a more listened to song than Seether. Now that second album was produced by none other than Bob rock, who yes. most people probably don't know is the guy who produced most of Metallica's albums yes. up until St. Anger, uh, which he got fired on and is arguably their worst album. No, no, not even I still arguably. haven't seen
1: that movie.
0: Oh my God. It's, it is a train wreck. I'm, yeah. Such a train wreck. But apparently, uh, Nina Gordon the lead Singer of Veruca Salt At a festival either right Before or right after their set the uh, PA music that was playing Was enter Sandman She somehow hadn't heard it yet (laughs) Loved the production on it and went I want that guy to produce our Next album oh
1: that's so great I know
0: it's amazing like I don't Hear Veruca Salt and go Totally got that Bob Rock feel to It (laughs) But th- they got him, and he produced their second album. In between uh, American Thighs and their second album, which is called... Uh, Eight Arms to Hold You. Eight Arms to Hold You. Uh, they had a, a EP that was produced by Steve Albini, of all people, of Nirvana yeah. fame.
1: So I mean, like St- Steve Albini, like, has this has this cachet as like, uh, you know, like a, a hardcore indie guy. But like, I know what you're gonna you know, say. if you if you cut Steve Albini a check, he will produce your album. Yeah. I, and I then mean, he'll put engineered by, or recorded by Steve Albini on it.
0: And, and the thing is, uh, sorry, because if Steve Albini ever happens to hear this, he's not a very good producer.
1: Yeah, I think I agree. <laughs> <laughs> like
0: you I I challenge anybody to hear anything that he's done outside Nirvana and go, Man, this sounds really, really good.
1: Um yeah, I mean I do I, I don't really like the songs very much, but I, I think I do like the, the clarity of the production on the Shellac at Action Park album.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. I'd have to go back and listen to it yeah. but you know, I I don't want to shoot down any everything he's ever done, but
1: yeah, but I I agree. Like that, it's not it's not like a a marker of quality for me if I see Steve's name on something. Sure. So
0: Veruca Salt uh, was originally signed to a Chicago label called Minty Fresh Records, who. Uh, we're also Liz Fairs' uh, record company for a while. They released the Cardigans, and now I have to ask you, who the hell is Papa's Fritas?
1: Yes, you were like mid Fresh. They didn't do, they didn't do much. I'm like, they released uh, all the Papa's Fritas records. Um, I think you would really enjoy Papa's Fritas. They are a, an obscure pop band from the '90s. Their best song is called "Way You Walk." Okay, uh, you will. You've probably heard this song before, but didn't know who it was by. Okay. Or if not, as soon as you'll hear it, you'll be like, oh, wow, this was one of these classic song ideas that was just out in the air and they happened to grab it.
0: Everybody go check out Papa's Fridas. I will do the same. Um, So once uh, they started gaining traction, there was a fight by a bunch of labels to pick them up and Geffen Records uh, subsidiary DGC ended up picking them up, who Nirvana was on for a while. There were a lot of big names and uh, it's it's kind of surprising to me because I don't really hear, like, absolute superstar when I hear Veruca Salt, but I think this was, again, one of these capturing lightning in a bottle type things where all these labels were, like, just dying to find the next big thing, an alternative, yeah. and, and who can beat out who for the next big thing. You know, there was this joke in... That in Seattle in the early '90s, all you had to do was write a song and you'd get signed, and it, it started happening <laughs> Question, like that everywhere.
1: Where where does the joke part come in? Uh,
0: I guess it wasn't a joke. I guess it was a real thing. Um, <laughs> I I just uh, I just watched the uh, award that Mopop out of Seattle gave to uh, Allison Chains, and there's a bunch of. It was a two-hour special with a bunch of. Seattle stars and other stars from other places playing uh, Alice in Chains songs. And it it got me thinking that people like Tad Doyle from Mm -hmm. the band Tad, who uh, performed one of these songs, you know, never really made it. But people who listen to Grunge and Alternative knew who he was oh yeah for sure i don't think that he's a guy who
1: tad's still alive huh
0: yeah it it, (laughs) it shocked me too uh and i'm not sure anybody would have known who tad doyle was if it weren't for the grunge movement
1: I, i i think you can safely say that yes yeah um, I feel I I'm like five years too Young to have like ended up kind of In the middle of that I feel like like I I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been signed or anything Because I wasn't very good but uh, But like you know I arrived in Seattle in 96
0: I don't think that uh, I Dressed right for the part um, At the time oh, I did <laughs> uh, I wanted to but I, I you know like most people Who picked up on the flannel shirt And ripped jeans thing I think I looked like I was trying too hard.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you, um, you, Oh, you said you, you wanted to talk about uh, the BMG and Columbia House. I also want to talk about some specifics about the song.
0: Why don't we talk about the song first, okay. and then I want to get into Columbia House and BMG.
1: Okay, so I think that compared to a lot of times we will we will get into a song and like realize as we're as we're digging into the song that the song structure is not as straightforward as we expected. This is not one of those times.
0: No, this song is A, B, A, B, bridge, uh,
1: B, out. Yeah. And like they're, you know, no one should ever have to apologize for doing things that way.
0: I mean, the things that stuck out to me are it's got a great bridge And it ends on a five chord, which is uh, unresolved. So for the people who aren't music nerds like us, it basically means that it's not ending on the chord that uh, is is the key that the song's in, which I think is pretty cool, uh, but is a pretty classic songwriting thing. Um,
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Just kind of like leave things hanging out there. It's like it feels like if someone said, oh, hey, I'll be right back and then disappeared. But the, it's like these, getting ghosted by a song.
0: But these things sound like criticisms and
1: Oh no 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 no, it's 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 done very deliberately like in in a way that sounds cool.
0: And and it's done very well. Like it I I've said it before, it is hard to write a cashy pop song. Like it people Take that for granted, but to put something together that flows, that works, that has a good chorus that you can sing along with is not an easy task. And this is a really well-written pop song.
1: This reminds me, uh, if you're looking for a book or for a gift for a uh, what it'll, it'll be January when this comes out. So uh, a, a, late, a late holiday gift uh, for someone whose birthday is in January. Uh, Jeff Tweedy has a new book called How to Write One Song, and it is the best book about songwriting I've ever read. And I'm, I say that not even as particularly a Jeff Tweedy fan.
0: I was going to say, I didn't even think you like Wilco or Jeff Tweedy.
1: I mean, I like... It's it's not it's not really my thing but I totally respect what he does. I guess
0: yeah that's that's like me with Bruce Springsteen. Sure. Yeah, like, me too. It's it's hard to not respect him but not my
1: thing. I I really like the guitar solo in this song. It comes, like, exactly uh, when you expect and lasts for exactly as many bars as you would expect. Um, and it's just kind of, like, crisp and perfectly done. And I was reading an interview uh, with Louise Post, uh, the lead guitarist, uh, uh, in an Australian guitar magazine, and she said quote, you can totally blame my guitar teacher who was this stoner who was always telling me to play more solos. It's so funny because I was not inclined to play solos, but he was always pushing me to do it. He was teaching me all the modes, like Dorian mode, etc. And I remember him saying, dude, play more solos, play more solos. <laughs> I love that.
0: Uh, I remember being in music school really early on. And oh, you
1: went to music school? I, I didn't realize
0: that. Uh, Yeah, I, I know I've never mentioned this. Uh, and uh, I I wanted to be the guy who knew more than everybody else when I was actually the guy who knew much less than everybody else. Yeah. And I was in a uh, group with a woman who was pretty novice at guitar, not bad, but definitely getting to know the instrument. And we were playing jazz, and I clearly remember telling her, just solo over everything in pentatonic. It always works. That is so not true on (laughs) any level (laughs) that I don't remember her name, but if you're listening to this, I take it all back. I was wrong.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there are many things wrong with that statement. We don't need to go into it. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Um, You also said that you remember this song being faster than it was, and you said like their version from Glastonbury 95.
1: Okay. I think if if you like this song already, or even if you don't, Check out the Glastonbury '95 version. It's on YouTube. uh It's uh it, it shows like why everyone was slavering to sign Veruca Salt because they were a terrific live band.
0: I went back and watched this the other day, and it's incredible watching three hundred thousand people lose their mind yes. in front of this band that had just kind of made it only a few months beforehand and what that must have felt like to them traveling across the pond like you know it maybe 6 months after this song hit and just seeing droves of people absolutely what did you say slathering over them
1: uh well i was talking about like labels slavering over them slavering. but uh, but yeah but fans were also slavering there was there's was a lot of a lot more slavering in the 90s because uh we stopped taking people's tonsils out i guess i don't know
0: (laughs) yeah i'd I'd slaver at school during lunch i was slavering my sleep then over sometimes
1: like like uh you know public buildings would put up no slavering signs but it was not effective it was like uh people people would people with graffiti on the wall slavering is not a crime
0: (laughs) okay i I think we took this joke part okay great (laughs) (laughs) um so uh what I was thinking about this week was uh, Columbia house and BMG for those of you who uh, might not have been old enough uh, at the time during actually starting in the seventies, but really hitting its stride during the nineties, these uh, two, uh, what, what would you call them? Uh, subscription well, I mean, they, services. Yeah,
1: they were, they were like uh, uh, subsidiaries of record labels, right? They
0: were, uh, Columbia House and BMG would advertise in all of the music magazines and probably in other publications uh, with hundreds and hundreds of different albums that you could buy and their big thing was you could get eight of them for a penny or ten of them for a dollar yeah and of course there were all these catches with it that you had to buy a certain amount at a exorbitant price during the well, next and the,
1: year i mean the gimmick was like the the scam was uh first of all you would literally tape a penny to the card that you would mail in uh and then they would if you if you didn't tell them not to they would send you a cd every month and you would have to send it back or they would charge you sixteen dollars for it and you could get a hold
0: of them if you caught it in time and opt out of it, Right. But most people wouldn't. So you would constantly w- wind up with these albums, and every once in a while, maybe you'd want it, but at the time, CDs probably cost about $12 in the store, and they were charging about $18 for these yeah. full-price albums. So there, you were, know, there were a lot of lawsuits that went on with this.
1: It must have been so like demoralizing to work in the Columbia house or BMG call center. And like all day long, it's just fucking angry moms and dads. Like, you know, my kids signed, you know, taped a penny to your stupid card and signed up for their thing. And now like you're charging me $18 for fucking uh, what, what's something that they would send you that you wouldn't want. Well, okay. Uh,
0: This this brings up a point. So I watched this really, really low res documentary, Uh, this week about Columbia house that that's by a guy who worked there during the nineties Oh, and he filmed everything on a cheap camcorder. And (laughs) for some reason they let him like meetings and everything. And
1: well, I mean, you can't, you can't tell Shannon Hoon to turn off his camcorder. He's a big star. Right. He's working at Columbia house,
0: watching the ins and outs of how they did this stuff. It was run by a bunch of people who seemed to know nothing about the music business. Okay, that makes sense. What they would do is when you signed up, you would check a box for what your favorite kind of music was. I remember that. And then they would send you a catalog in the mail every month with choices from that genre. So if you liked adult contemporary, you would get a catalog of adult contemporary, but then if you got the alternative one and they show this in the the documentary, it was the exact same layout. Like they were basically just copying and pasting everything with just different bands. And what happened was this was working for them for a long time, but alternative listeners, because they seem to shun mainstream and not want to be a part of what they were told to do and what they were told to listen to, Columbia House and BMG wasn't really working with it. So they had to completely change the way that they marketed to this demographic. And they hired some younger people and said, what do we do here? We're just copying and pasting our adult contemporary with different artists. And so they came up with these magazines that not only had like, really creative fonts and like more like well-written articles about the bands that you should be listening to and then like some articles that were kind of like backhanded compliments or just slaps in the face to what they thought sucked so that these alternative listeners would be like yeah see I'm not the only one who thinks these guys suck I'm not gonna buy their stuff and it was like a way of of saying, you don't have to buy this, but hopefully by telling you that we think some things suck, you'll buy these 20 other albums for
1: wow. us. Wow. It- no, I, I fell off the, the Columbia House train before that. Although, as you were talking about this, a long suppressed memory popped into my head because I thought, like, mostly when I did these, it was like in the hair metal era, and I would get like, you know, Bon Jovi's New Jersey and stuff. But... Clearly, I was aware of it much later than that because I vividly remember getting the catalog from one of them, and it had uh, nine-inch nails. Uh, what was the first nine-inch nail? Pretty Hate Machine, and it was described like it, the capsule description consisted of one word: industrial! Yep. Exclamation point.
0: <laughs> yep. Uh, these people didn't know what they were doing for a long right? time, but but. When they when they figured it out, when they hired young people who were like, "You're doing it all wrong," and and gave them carte blanche, it worked. And so, I was fourteen in 1994, and I got Veruca Salt, American Thighs, through awesome. B- through BMG, and I got a lot of albums through BMG. And I look back now, and you mentioned in the intro how you discovered bands were things like magazines and MTV and the record store, but I discovered a lot of bands through Columbia House and BMG because I would get this magazine once a month and it'd be like, Hey, are you listening to this? Then why aren't you listening to this?
1: Oh, yeah, I didn't I, I totally forgot about that. That's great. So
0: I got things like the Juliana Hatfield Three's first album. Yeah. I can't name a single song off that album, but I owned it because BMG basically told me, Is
1: that Welcome to Wherever You Are?
0: Yes. Yes. And nice work. Thanks. And and I would I would buy this stuff because they would tell me, yeah, this is cool, you should listen to it. And so, you know, for a 14-year-old who was trying to figure out their uh, musical likes and dislikes, it really worked.
1: Yeah, that is cool. You know, I realize now another another way that I heard about new music was that I was starting to write about music at that time and so the labels would sometimes send me stuff and uh the, one of the first things I ever got was uh, I wanted to interview Foo Fighters, and uh, they said you cannot interview Foo Fighters, but you can interview the opener, Shutter to Think, and we're going to send you Shutter to Think's new album, Pony Express record, which is still one of my favorite records. It's really great,
0: and I saw them open up for Foo Fighters.
1: Yeah. we Were we at the same show?
0: I think we were at the same yeah. show because I was too young for our mother to let me go to shows on my own. Uh, my much cooler older brother had to take me to
1: them that's right <laughs> um all right anything else um
0: i think the this band is still great they got back together yes in, in, yeah uh i think it was around 2013 and if it weren't for covid they would probably be recording and or touring right now so when all this covid bs blows over I wouldn't see Veruca Salt because they got back together with all of the original members and are touring as that original band, which is a rarity in this day and age.
1: Right. And their their most recent album from 2015 that I think does, maybe doesn't have all of the original members is still quite good.
0: Yeah, it's, it's worth it to listen to. And, you know, not always the basic rule, but they continue to be great songwriters after all these years. Yeah.
1: Um, one thing I want to mention that, uh, it's not quite too late, uh, although I think this is a limited time thing that's going to expire like f- end of the first week of January, uh, Bad Religion, uh, one of my favorite bands is celebrating their 40th year and, uh, they couldn't tour this year, of course, and so they did, uh, four shows at the Roxy in la uh to to nobody and uh and recorded them and each show concentrates has only songs from one of the four decades of the band so uh the 80s I just watched the 80s one and they're they're debuting them over the course of four weeks but if you go to bit.ly bad religion one you can buy all of them and watch all of them right now for I think 40 bucks and it is fantastic
0: that is such a cool idea and reminds me of one other thing that i want to add in about this documentary that i watched this week one of the scenes uh columbia house at one point starts selling merchandise too to try and diversify and at one point this guy holds up a bad religion sh- shirt and goes can we sell this under alternative and the guy goes yeah they're alternative yeah <laughs>
1: I mean, it was it was kind of true. Like American Jesus was on uh, 120 minutes all the time.
0: I guess I, I wouldn't classify them as that. But no. uh, whatever it took to sell albums.
1: That That's the thing I was going to say that, like, you know, to to jump back to the like, you know, dry production of the 90s. The only bands that can do that these days, like setting Taylor Swift aside, are are punk rock bands. So, like, uh, if, have you heard the, the album by Teenage Halloween? I have not. Okay, first of all, this is one of the greatest fucking album covers I have ever seen in my life. Oh, my God. So just Google it, right, it now. right now, Teenage Halloween. Uh, and it's also, like, just a terrific, uh, you know, straight-ahead punk rock album that's uh, it's smart, it's melodic, highly recommended. And
0: and the first hit on Google is Teenage Halloween Costumes. <laughs>
1: to just dress up as a teen.
0: Yes. Uh, what the hell?
1: Isn't that amazing? <laughs>
0: You are talking about the uh, pumpkin head with the flamethrower, right?
1: Uh, yeah, <laughs>
0: that's really good. And oh, I just God. I like
1: how the pumpkin it looks so like wilted and sad.
0: Yeah, like <laughs> oh, all I got left is this flamethrower. I know. Halloween. I guess I guess I can
1: <laughs> got to get the job done with just a flamethrower and a pumpkin head. Um. All right. So listen to Faruk Assault, Listen to Teenage Halloween and Bad Religion and whatever whatever bands Jake mentioned. Uh, and uh, find us online at HiddenJukebox.com, uh, Facebook.com slash HiddenJukebox, right?
0: In- Instagram.com slash hidden. Listen to us on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Tell your friends, as always. And until next time, I'm Jake Amster.
1: And I'm Matthew Amster Burton.